Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club, with myself, Heiho Munkant Co, and your old pal Ocho. Hello. How you doing? I'm okay, I just realised that I should have my notes ready to talk about whatever we're going to talk about, and I can't find them! Well, you see, now you're somebody who is very conscientious when it comes to the research for these shows, and you do take notes when you're watching things like The Gaffer, whereas I think that... I'm a bit more freeform, and by freeform I mean lazy. However, in this instance, because it is absolutely crucial to the discussion, I do have notes aplenty in front of me. They're not notes that I've written, but they are notes nevertheless. Okay. Now, before we get down with Only Fools and Horses, Royal Flush, do we have any other business outstanding from previous or indeed forthcoming weeks? Well, we did have a little follow-up from the mailbag. We answered Phil Cope's question, and he shot back at us with, I'm pretty sure that Alfie Bess's Six Degrees of Separation had a session on John Peel in the early 70s. <laughs> this itself really is any other business. The whole cast is any other business arising from Just Good Friends. It is, actually, isn't it? Yes, because if you didn't hear our episode on Just Good Friends last week, just Good Friends concludes on Christmas Day 1986, the same day, incidentally, as the Juicy Free Christmas special, which we've discussed previously. And as part of all the ins and outs of that, I don't think it's going to give too much away to say that John Sullivan was in Paris to supervise the recording of the last Just Good Friends episode. As a result, he was not present for the recording of some key scenes in that year's Christmas special of Only Fools and Horses, which is entitled A Royal Flush. Now, this has led to, I suppose you would say, unique situation. I mean, there are instances, there are many, many instances of sitcoms being edited these days, be it for humour of their time, for example. I'm keeping a running log of all the edits to Free 2 one currently being shown on Challenge TV, for example. So the focus today is on a unique instance of a sitcom episode being effectively withdrawn from circulation and then re-edited by its creator and then re-released. Now, this is not a director's cut type issue. This is not something where the episode was taken out of John Sullivan's hands by somebody at the BBC and they said, no, we want to do it like this. And then years later, he's released his own version of it according to how he intended it to be. As I mentioned, John Sullivan was supervising the recording of the last episode of Just Good Friends at the same time as some of the scenes were shot for a raw flush. And these particular scenes have the potential to fundamentally alter the audience's enjoyment of it in terms of how they perceive, as it is in this case, Dell's actions towards Rodney. And we'll go through this in full because what we've done here is I've watched the original copy that went out on Christmas night, 1986. It's just over an hour and a quarter long. It had just under 19 million viewers on the night. Ocho, what you've seen is what is referred to as the 2004 version. I see. Okay. Now, I'm going to give full credit to the Only Fools and Horses fans site, which is OFAH.net. There is a superb series of articles on here called Only Fools and Horses Cuts, and this covers a huge breadth of the series, all the way back to episode one and so on, and it's actually taken them three individual articles to catalogue all of the edits to Royal Flush. There are some instances in earlier episodes where you get like the odd line that's been removed later on, or obviously you get like the odd cut for usage of music and so on. The episode follows the pattern of the previous year's Christmas special to Holland Back in that it does not have an audience, doesn't have a live audience. Unlike to Holland Back, there are VT shots within the flat. You do see the flat into Holland Back, but it's on film. Here, it's on VT. And Ocho, the 2004 version that you've seen, suddenly there's an audience. A weird audience. 
I was a bit in the market right at the beginning where I'm not entirely sure whether the audience are laughing at Dell or whether it's the crowd around him. There's an odd mixing quality, so occasionally it sounds like the laughter is actually coming from the location. You can tell that it's not quite right in the sound mix. So let's have a look at what's being edited. But like I say, the series of articles, it's on the Only Fools and Horses fan sites, and these were written by Ronnie English that I'm using for reference here. First of all, if you can get hold of it, because you have to really go searching for it, but if you can get hold of it, you can actually still get the uncut version of A Royal Flush. You're not going to see it turn up on television anywhere. John Sullivan and, for that matter, both David Jason and Ray Butts, the producer and director, they were all unhappy with the finished article. And we'll find out later on why that is in particular. There's a specific scene and how it's played by David Jason according to the direction he's given, according to the original script, everything sort of turns on that in terms of your feel-good or otherwise feeling at the end of the episode. So these days, if you see a repeat of a raw flush on BBC, or more likely on Gold, it's going to be a version that was rejigged in 2004, cut down to 58 minutes. A whole 14 minutes has been cut out of this. It's got the audience laughter added, and that's the version that you're going to see on TV these days. If you want to try and find the original version of this, you're going to have to go looking for copy of the Only Fools and Horses DVD collector's magazine from a few years ago. It was one of those, you don't tend to see them much anymore, but you know the adverts on the TV, multi-part, buy part one, get part two free, and then collect them forevermore, and so on and so on. And in that particular series, a few years back, there was an Only Fools and Horses set, and the version of Raw Flush that's on there is the full-length version. So, like we say, established straight away, we've got no audience laughter in the original version. Ocho, in your version, you've got a phony, I suppose you'd say. Well, I'm assuming this was done with a, a laugh track session. Have we really ever gone into laughs on sitcoms? It's something that we talked about in the very, very earliest, before we were a podcast. It's something we talked about in the very, very earliest episodes. And we did actually give examples of specific laughs that we've heard being reused. Well, that's left a washing, program. isn't it? Which is an extra complication. I mean, I still see people now abusing the term canned laughter. So there are people out there who don't know the difference between canned laughter and a live studio audience. But added to that is things like post-production laugh tracks. I don't suppose you get them quite as often now. But I remember when Last of the Summer Wine went to film, someone saying, well, it's obviously canned laughter is obviously then nobody's laughing at what's happening on screen because look it's all on location they don't have a studio audience out there in the fields with them and not long after that i found out i think they took some of the episodes to pictureville cinema in bradford to record the post-production laugh track so the laughs were actually responding to what was happening on the screen it was just happening sometime after the episode had been edited and you get the situation where laugh tracks end up being used as canned laughter with I Love Lucy, I think I Love Lucy, some of them certainly, I don't know if it was a case of all of them, the laugh track is done afterwards and Desi Arnaz is in the audience. So you can hear him laughing at his own antics. These laugh tracks were then used on other things. I can't remember what it was. I was watching a few weeks ago and my wife went, was Desi Arnaz there? It's like, no, they, <laughs> they sold on the I Love Lucy laugh tracks to other shows. What I was alluding to earlier was one particular instance of a laugh. I can't describe it. I will try and describe it. I mean, the best description I can give is that it's a brief, high-pitched laugh. And it's something that you hear Oh yes, just about... You think, you think, yeah, you know the one I'm No, that's the term about. we forgot to mention, laughter washes which is when you might have an actual studio audience, but canned laughter has been added to it. Yes. I know of a particular... I don't know where it comes from. I'd like to know. I know of a particular laugh that I heard on one of the first episodes of You've Been Framed in 1990, and I still hear on shows today. So I know it's at least 24 years old and probably a lot older. Who made You've Been Framed? That was Granada. Oh, right. Because I know London Weekend kept a lot of their laughter as files. I have also heard the same laugh on an episode of Bottom, which was an in-house BBC production. So this is not something that's exclusive to one particular studio. 
but London Weekend kept the files with innocuous names because these laughs were incredibly desirable <laughs> because of the design of London Weekend Studios and the sound he got off it. They didn't want freelancers coming in and nicking the laughter. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why audience masking goes on, but it, it does then undo that argument about, oh, there's no such thing as canned laughter, because as far as that element's concerned, that's exactly then what we got is. the argument that, oh, comedy's just so much classier without a laugh track, and laugh track's really patronising, and shouldn't it's telling you when to laugh, which I don't agree with. It certainly wouldn't work for some things, but watching a Laurel and Hardy film in a... Th- cinema compared to watching it at home it's a completely different experience and i think laughs are part of the music really it helps it helps with for something that where you might be sitting by yourself some of those lines are not going to sing if you don't have that communal laughter to jolly you along dear listeners it's not something i normally do but i'm going to allude to something that I'll then actually properly reveal later on but just for the point of this part of the conversation ocho i just want you to picture the very, very last scene in Royal Flush, okay? Now imagine that without audience laughter because you've seen it with it. <laughs> well, there's so much of it. I, that one of my notes here is this would be agony without laughs. Yes, exactly. So I think that this is uh, a great example of something which really should have audience laughter. I think there's something specific about the fact that they're in the flat and it's on VT, We've seen the flat on film into Holland back, and there's, I think there's a different expectation. Certainly, as far as I'm concerned, than I, I suspect for a lot of people watching this, you you react to it in a slightly different way when it's presented to you like that. But when it's presented to you, and it it looks exactly as it normally looks when there's a big old raucous audience and there's nothing there, it feels it's got a sort of BBC Two play sort of vibe. I mean, these days, of course, what with the techniques that they use in terms of frame rate and so on, you don't really see studio plays in that way. It's not really something that's a feature of modern TV. But like a show like Play for Today, for example, back in the day, it's exactly what you'd have. You'd have it on videotape. Okay, well, we'll come back to that, obviously, because that's right at the end of the episode. So, First of all, what were your thoughts on Raw Flush overall as an episode? I didn't like it. Even with laughs, even with 14 minutes of footage, Dell does not come across well. No, he doesn't. And I'm going to... I'm just play his actions as well, not just by the way he does things. I know there's this idea that some of the things come across as aggressive, whereas they could have been lovable. I'm not sure how you could have made him lovable unless you made him a lot more clueless, which we already know Del Boy not to be. Well... Dell is very street smart. He doesn't always have the best grasp on how he himself comes across to others. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate for the sake of our conversation. I think that there are times when Dell doesn't realise precisely what he's doing. I wouldn't necessarily extend that to the sort of outright manipulation that he engages in here. This this came across more like Steptoe Son. That little kernel of malignant selfishness that you get in Albert Steptoe. Well, I'm going to put up a defence of Dell shortly. Although I realise that actually, if I then rewind the episode just about an hour or so, I'm going to then immediately undo that defence. But we'll come on to that. So, okay, so we begin Raw Flush. We begin it like any regular only Fools and Horses episode, Dell's in the market, he's flogging his gear, he's got this dinner service that he's selling. Like I say, have a look at the Only Fools and Horses fan site if you want to see an absolute line-for-line report on what has been cut here. There are quite a few things where it would appear that John Sullivan perhaps has taken advantage of doing an edit in 2004 to get rid of a few references that would have been topical at the time but would no longer be. So, for example, Dell says to Paul McDowell, the customer who's annoying him in the marketplace, he says, who do you think I am? Rupert Maxwell. So you've got bits and pieces at this point, nothing really to do with the plot, so to speak, but you've got bits and pieces which have been tightened, you've got some pieces of dialogue that have been dropped. Then, of course, Rodney spots Victoria in the marketplace, and as he then discovers, she is nobility. At first, 
it just appears because she's selling her paintings on the market stall and Rodney has to explain look you know people around here they're not going to be in the market for fine art that's not what people are buying in Peckham and they get chatting and then of course he discovers that she is daughter of the Duke of Melbury and that she's actually got special branch protection. So they have a shared interest in art. They strike up a conversation. Rodney then researches this. This is when we get the first scene in the flat. So I just wanted to imagine this, Ocho. I wanted to imagine... Okay, you don't even have to imagine this episode. Imagine... I don't want to be unfair. So obviously the cast are playing it without an audience. So it's not like, for example somebody has taken an episode of Only Fools and Horses and removed all of the laughter and then you've got pauses where there's supposed to be laughter. It's not like that. But just imagine it for now, the scenes that you've seen... Actually, in... can I go off topic? Do you remember... It was in the 90s when BBC Two repeated The Adams Family and a la mesh, some of those hadn't had their laugh track added, their canned laughter added. So you would have... Gomez would say something funny and then stop. And grin a little for a laugh that never came. So, okay, I wanted to imagine, Ocho, the scenes that you saw in the flat. Imagine taking the audience laughter out of them. Are you getting a sort of different vibe now? It will change the performances. Even even a post-production laugh track will not fix those performances because sometimes performers like to ride the laughter and time themselves around an audience reaction. Now, we're not saying there's any... I mean, there's no fault at all on the part of any... I wouldn't... I'm not saying a fault, but I wouldn't blame them if their performances were down a little, or up a little, if they were overcompensating for silence. I'm not saying they do that, but it's one of the factors that comes in that would change it, not just the fact that it sounds different. So, as far as the plot's concerned, basically, Rodney is looking up the details of Victoria's heritage and her family and so on in Burks. He then makes a mistake of telling Dell, and of course it's all as far as one is concerned, it's all downhill from then on. And that's when we start then getting into the bits and pieces where there's some serious editing. There are a handful of lines which are removed from the scene in the flat, one of which is Dell making reference to Tony Ben when Rodney says, I don't want to be a duke. And then we then switch to the opera. That's where I start to lose all sympathy with Dell. This scene here has got a hell of a lot of edits, and I'm interested because what? I did a little. Oh, what? Oh, yes. You saw the. It only needs one edit from the beginning to the end. You saw the short version. Oh, okay. boy. Now, when I was watching this, because I, I made a point of deliberately not watching the 2004 version because I knew you were going to see that yourself. So when I was watching the earlier version today, when I was watching the scene in the Opera House, which is actually filmed at the aforementioned in the script location the Theatre Royal Drury Lane Victoria's mentioned that there's a performance of Carmen and that tickets are like gold dust and even her father's not being able to get hold of any tickets however of course Dell, no problem with his contacts he manages to nab tickets for Rodney to take Victoria along he then discovers to his horror that actually Dell got four tickets and he himself has come along with June Diane Langton who we saw in an earlier episode from season four. I remember when I was watching this scene earlier on, I remember thinking, I'm really interested to get Ocho's reaction to this. Because this scene was really, really lengthy in the original one. Now, I'm referring to the guide here on the fan site. For example, there are some minor edits earlier on. One thing that you didn't see, it's a bit of an oddity. You see the section where Victoria and Rodney are in the chauffeur-driven vehicle, which we presume is Victoria's special branch vehicle because it then picks her up at the end of the night. Victoria says, I'm amazed you managed to get tickets because they were impossible to get. Well, for me, I thought that was leading to a big switch that you think, oh, yes. Oh, yeah, we know Dell. They're going to turn out to be fake tickets. Phew, sense of relief when his tickets get torn and he gets ushered through. So... She says to him, I can't believe you managed to get tickets. Rodney then replies, let's just say I've got contacts. And the next thing you would have seen then is them arriving at the Theatre Royal and going in. There's an odd little bit of business in the original version which doesn't go anywhere. But it sort of suggests that it might. When Rodney says, let's just say I've got contacts, you see 
the driver of the vehicle looking in his mirror and you see his eyes narrowing as if to say yeah you're bullshitting son and the conversation continues and Victoria says oh they must have cost the earth and he says I didn't ask I just told my man get them and again the driver looks at Rodney and says yeah bullshit detectors going off here now that could have provided a bit more necessary justification for some of Dell's actions later if we establish the chauffeur's special branch and he hears some guy talking about what could be snide tickets we've got a bit more to say why Dell would want to possibly break this up well this is the thing because as it turns out they're not snide tickets we find that out soon thereafter however the impression I got from this is that the driver is saying to Rodney with his eyes he's saying punching above your weight here so to speak not not so much that he's with Victoria more that basically he's bluffing he's out of his depth and he's trying to get through this awkward situation but he's not convincing in what he's saying so it's almost just sort of putting that initial seed of doubt in the viewer's mind that this situation is not going to work for Rodney because he's in a world which is largely alien to him and of course that is then later on as you say that's going to be Dell's argument for why he does what he does there are some other bits and pieces that have been removed early on Rodney mentions how much the programs are for example when he buys one then of course Dell and June turn up like I say you've got all those bits and pieces that have been removed I, I mean I, I presume that a lot of this is going to be for timing because whereas the original version went out an hour and 20 minute slot it's been cut down to 58 minutes and you presume that a running time of something like 61 minutes would not exactly be ideal if this is being prepared for transmission on BBC in the future so 58 minutes is preferable to just over an hour or just under running or whatever it may be so I think we can safely assume that some of these bits and pieces that don't actually relate to the full on plot have been removed for that reason one thing actually that was removed completely were you aware that Julie apparently is illiterate oh no that's interesting that's been removed because she says Dell how come she Victoria's got a program and I haven't and Dell says because she can read so again that doesn't feature later on you might think that that was a sort of hint as to something that's going to happen later on but no now this is outrageous references to Vince Hill have been cut (laughs) (laughs) when Dell and Julia are having a conversation about culture and Dell's sort of saying you don't go to the opera to enjoy it you go because it's there uh, Julie says oh I don't, I don't mind a bit of culture I like Vince Hill and he's sort of saying well yeah Vince Hill he's, he's sort of almost culture but not quite <laughs> now this bit I'm really intrigued to find out litter was there any litter in your version oh you mean from when she got the chocolates out and mm-hmm. yeah not that I remember oh but now as that is established I'm not the most perceptive of people sometimes that's really interesting because I don't know if being a litter lout in 2014 is a much worse offence than being a litter lout in 1986, but I've got a funny feeling actually that it's, it is slightly, that I think it's frowned upon more, because, okay, I shouldn't say 2014, I should say 2004, because that's when the re-edit was made, but I did think as I was watching this that constantly Dell and Julie are just dropping their empty packets on the floor, and this is all building up to later on when Dell then comes in with a handful of ice creams he steps on this empty drink carton which then gets the attention of everybody in the audience and also the performers on the stage as well oh I don't remember that wow interesting okay now again the way it's presented here it's it's just the way that Dell and Julie are it's just like you know finished drop it but actually watching it today it really came across as sort of antisocial as if to say, you're not really just going to leave all your stuff all over the floor. I wasn't looking at it from the point of view as, you're at the opera, this is the Carmen. Thing is, I'm not sure if that's necessarily a, oh, you can't get away with that nowadays edit, as if knowing that later on Dell is going to come across worse than he should, they try and minimise damage. Or maybe maybe there's a certain element of timing as well. One hour 16 show is a bit unwieldy to deal with. Well, this is the thing. I don't know if it... It may be that it was intended to come across as... For goodness sake, they're at the Theatre Royal. This is the opera that they're at, and they're dropping litter. 
Whereas I was looking at it just now thinking, damn it, they're dropping litter. It wasn't the location or the event. It was just the fact that there were being litter louts. So, I don't know, it may be it may be that it does sort of change your perception of Dell later on because you really see them act in a I wouldn't say boorish, but yeah, in an antisocial sort of manner. Now, was there a scene involving ice creams? Yes. Okay. So does he actually I didn't hand- realise I was on the Krypton factor? <laughs> I watched it. I took notes. I didn't transcribe. <laughs> does he actually say to Rodney, I've got you an ice cream? I think he does, yes. Okay. I have seen this episode more than once, and this is the first time today that I ever picked up on this. He shoves the ice cream in Rodney's direction. Rodney says, I don't want it. And without realizing, Dell has shoved it straight into Rodney's suit, his dinner jacket, leaving a stain. Later on, when they go to the Duke's Manor for the weekend, Rodney's still got the ice cream stain on his dinner jacket. (laughs) So I was intrigued to find it. That's why I was asking specifically if there was any ice cream-related malarkey going on earlier on, because if there hadn't been, you would have just thought, oh, bloody hell, Rodney, you've let yourself down there. You've got a stain on your dinner jacket. You can't blame (laughs) Dill for that, but actually you can, because you've seen it. So the sequence in the opera house is quite lengthy. It's certainly longer than I think all in all, probably about a quarter of an hour or so. And there's a lot of build-up. There's a lot of repetition with Dell offering Rodney and Victoria liquid sauce or crisps or ice cream or anything else that it may be. This is a little piece as well. There are several occasions when the audience members tell Dell, be quiet. And on several occasions Dell replies to them in an aggressive manner. No, I don't know if aggressive. I don't remember any of that. I don't know if aggressive is quite the word, but he basically stands up for himself. If the guy in front of him turns around and says "shush," he'll just sort of eyeball him and say, "Don't you shush me?" And this happens several times to the point where, yeah, Dell is sort of pushing his luck here. He's going overboard with just how antisocial he's being, and. You can't even argue in this instance, as opposed to later on, that he's got a specific plan in mind, because he's just there at the opera with Jin. He's just behaving the way that he would normally behave, and he doesn't quite understand why everybody else is not treating this as if they've gone to see status quo in concert, and everybody's singing along and jumping about and what have you. He doesn't really appreciate the protocol here. So, yeah, he doesn't come across well. Nothing like later on, but he doesn't come across well in this scene at all. One interesting piece of trivia, which I gleaned from the Only Fools and Horses fan site. Did you see the scene where Dell is whistling along? At this point, I can't remember. <laughs> there is a few weeks since I watched There is a point at which... Episode. Do you say songs in opera? I'm, I'm Again, I'm a Philistine, I apologise. In the opera, there was, was this aria, song. the correct word. I'm not really heavy into opera, so... No. Okay, well, let, let, let's... If I remember, I'll edit out everything I've just said in the previous 25 seconds. So there was this aria, right? And and I believe that's actually the correct word that you use for the opera. You don't say song. That would be ridiculous. Anyway, okay, there's one piece where Dell says, oh, I recognize this one because it's, it must be something that's been used in an advert or something like that. And he whistles along. Apparently it's not him whistling. Apparently it's Fred Tomlinson. They paid for Fred Tomlinson? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, actually, no, I can think there might be, of course, a good reason for that. Which is, I'm, the sound of the opera will probably be added in afterwards. So there's no guarantee that David Jason can whistle in sync with music that he's not hearing. Well, I don't know how good a whistler David Jason is, but I'm a terrible whistler. And I really can't. I can't whistle to save myself. So if I ever find myself in a position where I've got to do that, then I'm going to want some off-screen assistance as well. So they leave the opera with Julie having had an incident, which you don't see, obviously, but is referred to. It is actually specifically referred to in the original version as Julie's psychedelic yodel. Oh, right. (laughs) No, I think there is reference to her throwing up, I'm fairly sure. But what is your overall impression of Dell at this point in the proceedings? He seems slightly clueless even for Dell. Do you like and this? This is the point where he starts to lose my sympathy in the episode. Do you like Del Boy, generally speaking? 
out with this episode? Actually, no. He reminds me of Budgie. He's not quite as monstrously selfish and unaware, but he's not far off. But I'm thinking about things like that holiday competition that humiliated Rodney Arthur and There are times when Dell can behave in an entirely selfish manner. And there are times when, to be fair, he does things entirely to protect Rodney. For example, the episode where Rodney develops a relationship with an older woman and then doesn't realise initially, but then discovers that her husband is doing time for GBH and that he's shortly to be released. Dell actually takes a beating from this guy, played by David Decker, I believe, and takes a beating from this guy because the guy thinks that he is Rodney. So the only choice he's got is either tell him, no, no, you, you've mistaken me for my younger brother. He was and in then... Slade Prison, wasn't he? <laughs> he was! Yes, he was in Slade Prison, you're right, of course. Ah! Unfortunately, I don't think Blanco was in that episode as well. It's a shame, because <laughs> they could have met previously. But no, okay then, he takes a good hiding. Well, you've probably seen more Only Fools and Horses than I have. It's just something I watched when it was on. I'm sure if I ploughed through it all, I'd eventually develop a slightly more positive view of Del Boy. But yeah, the last episode I watched is Royal Flush. It's not gonna... <laughs> There's not enough to counterbalance that impression. Then you've got... Well... This is the scene, isn't it? This is where all the trouble emanates from. Rodney arrives to spend the weekend with Victoria at the manor. They're engaged in some shooting. They're shooting clay pigeons. And Rodney has a stab at it. He has a go at it. He's a bit unsure, but does his best. And then at the corner of his eye, he spots this yellow freewill van. Hey, wait a minute. Sorry, something's just occurred to me. A massive problem with this episode. Oh, we'll get to that. No, don't go all Richard Keys on us. Tell us, tell us now. Go on, let's 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 no, have it's, it out. It's because it's something that hasn't happened yet in the episode as we're going through it. But it's just suddenly hit me as an odd thing. Okay, so Rodney is spotted. Dell Dell arrives with Albert in tow, and of course Dell has engineered the entire situation because he's come up with some cock and bull story about how. Rodney had left his dinner jacket behind, but of course Rodney corrects him on that and says, I did pack it, you took it out again, so that you'd have some pretext in order to come down. So Dell has effectively invited himself along, as he's very good at doing, manages to invite himself for dinner that evening as well. So are we to take it that he already has his plan here? I would say so. It doesn't come across, it just looks like he's turned up to be a jerk, to eat food, and... He has a go at the clear pigeon shooting with a dodgy shotgun. Hang on. This whole thing that Victoria's being protected by Special Branch, and yet you've managed to get somebody getting within a certain distance of her with this shotgun purchased from a non-criminal. <laughs> yes. How did he get to that stage? Yeah. You'd think as soon as he pulled the gun out, there'd be like five burly guys on him. <laughs> no, let me just emphasize that you probably already detected this, but let me just emphasize that this is a spoiler-filled zone, so if you have not seen this episode, and you want to see this episode Don't without bother. any spoilers, then, yeah, I mean, that's that's that made my recommendation as well. But if you do want to see this episode, then possibly podcast just now, because we are going to talk about the ending and so on and so on. So, okay, you're right that Dell has got this idea in his mind already, because he says to Rodney, just before they go down for dinner, just be aware that whatever happens this evening, I'm doing this for you. And then Rodney twigs and says, what do you mean? And Dale says, oh, nothing, I'm just going to help you make a good impression. And there are some other lines that are then being cut from that, but don't actually directly lead into the plot. We already know that Dale has a plan by this point. Now, this is where I'm going to put forward an argument in Dale's favour, probably foolishly, and then I'm going to immediately undo it. Dell does say to Rodney later on that he's engineered the situation where basically Rodney is no longer going to be with Victoria for his own good, because he thinks that Rodney is getting in over his head, he's getting involved in a world that he knows nothing about, and as he puts it bluntly, you've got this conviction for possession of cannabis, and once that had been discovered, if your relationship was going anywhere and you were headstrong, then 
they would make damn sure by whatever means to sort of take you out of the picture. Before I then undo this argument, am I being overly generous towards Dale in that regard? It just doesn't come across. And by the time it is made clear, we've already watched him being a bore and an irritant and unpleasant. And I saw the edited version. (laughs) So they needed to build that up more. I think they needed to sell that more. Maybe just a few things where you can tell there's a certain calculation to Dell's boorishness and you start wondering where's he going with this. But as it plays out and what I saw, it just looks at face value. Dell is drunk and he's just being the worst person he can be. Well, like I say, I'm now going to undo my argument by saying that if that was Dell's intention, and we're going to take it at face value that it is because that's the way that he argues it later on, then presumably this only occurred to him post-opera, because if he had had that view all along, then surely when Rodney was sitting there with a copy of Burke's, saying I've met somebody who turned out to be nobility and so on, surely he would have just said to him there and then, don't go any further with this. You're in out of your depth. And that's the other thing. The dinner is the opera all over again, but at the opera he didn't have the plan. So it just looks like we've already seen that when he's in a highfalutin world, Dell will behave as badly as possible. He's a peasant. So we've got Uncle Albert sat in the downstairs of upstairs, downstairs, alongside Kate Williams from Love Thy Neighbor, many other things. Meanwhile, Dell is at the table in the dining room and he's putting away the sauce. And again, this slightly undoes this idea that he's deliberately putting this on, unless, okay in danger of getting to the point of over-analyzing. But we've established earlier on that by Dell's actions in the opera house, he doesn't always appreciate how he comes across to other people. And yet he does seem to be quite at ease with drinking to excess and knowing that he's going to be boorish enough to really piss off everybody around him to the point where Henry says to him, I want shot of you and your brother. Yeah, there just has to be an easier way of doing this. Just going to the Duke and saying, look, I think you and I, we're men of the world, we need to break this up. Before all this weird behaviour, because it's an odd gamble. What happens if Dell gets thrown out and Rodney gets left behind? Because, well, you know, we we understand Rodney, this is not you that's doing this, so uh, we've taken Dell outside and shot him. No, okay, hang on. There's already been people suggesting this was a... Part of his plan is taking a shotgun near special branch officers and acting <laughs> as badly as possible. I mean, I've read bits and pieces on... If it was on... something that just happened on the spur of the moment, that Dell is improvising, Dell is trying to break up the situation, and he's not sure how. But we need to see Dell's notes. <laughs> <laughs> Dell's big book of schemes. I think also... I take your point there. I would just say that I've read quite a few bits and pieces on forums over the years of people saying, oh, this episode was such a downer on Christmas night. I mean, you know, oh, especially what with EastEnders before and after and so on. I don't think that them having Del Boy taken outside and shot would have helped in that regard. <laughs> I'm not saying they would have shown. Off I'm camera, just saying that, off camera. Yeah, I think even, yeah, even not then. Not in slow think, motion. And then the cringe. last course at the dinner is roast Del. <laughs> and they make Rodney take the lid off the silver tray. <laughs> There's Dell's head with an apple in his mouth, and the credits just roll. I was going to say Grinch Hill style credits with no music. <laughs> Is he still talking to Rodney when he's got his head on the plate? <laughs> you plonker! Told you this would happen. I'd take this damn apple out of my mouth. So anyway, no Dell's plan does not seem adequate justification. I was going to mention also that the way that Duke of Melbury, Henry, is portrayed by Jack Headley, he's not really seemingly any kind of menacing figure towards yes. Rodney. He's quite he's quite tolerant. I mean, he's tolerant of all Dell's nonsense for a start, but also when we've seen him earlier on as well, before Dell's arrived and so on, he's quite accommodating. He even says, again, I think this makes Dell look even worse. I think that this exchange was in your version. One of his other dinner guests says, who's this 
fell sat next to Victoria. And he says, oh, I think she's just going through a phase. He actually says, we, we had this fellow once who arrived with like a pit bull terrier and what have you. The implication being it was far worse fit for Victoria than Rodney was. So he seems quite laid back about There's it. There's another he's, thing as well. Throughout, Rodney's fairly insistent that he just wants to be friends with Victoria. I mean, insistent to Dell. It's, it's just a friendship. He seems to be aware that it's a big divide to cross. So that makes... I used to say Jack Headley mainly sticks in my mind as Brigadier Baby in the first episode of Mr. Don and Mr. George, talking about the career of status quo. <laughs> Do you remember that scene? I, 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 can't, I can't say I recall it, but I'll go on for a deal. Somebody's like, recommending like... Don and George as secret agents to Brigadier Baby at the Ministry of Defence. And he says, so the, these two people... The, what, what do we know about them? There's something about them, baby, I like. That was a status quo song, wasn't it? I'll, I'll end up quoting the entire scene. <laughs> but he does start talking about Spud Coughlin and his band Diesel. He goes, ah, must have come to nothing. <laughs> right, I'm going to go looking for that later on. It is a wonderful little scene. I did look up Jack Headley earlier on, and I already knew that he was in uh, a drama from the late 70s called Who Pays the Ferryman which some of which I think is set and filmed on Crete. It also mentions that he plays a role in For Your Eyes Only, James Bond film from 1981 and on the IMDB page it said Trivia, Jack Headley also provides the voice of the parrot. <laughs> now I'm not familiar enough with For Your Eyes Only to know whether the parrot has got a constant role on James Bond's shoulder. That'd be great if he did. I'm presuming it's just a, a little throwaway gag, but yeah. Are there any circumstances in which we could think of where Roger Moore would be required to carry around this bloody parrot in its cage the whole time that he's arsing That would be great with... if James Bond has to go into like this rough neighbourhood in a coastal town. I'm saying there's a lot of piracy in that area, so you really need to look like you belong in that world. And he decides to dress as Long John Silver to blend in. Just <laughs> <laughs> Roger Morgan. Arr, arr, she bled, <laughs> if that scene ever was recorded for Your Eyes Only, it's definitely one that didn't make the final cut. Right, so, okay. We know from that, just from that one line, and pretty much nothing else, he's given... Rodney sort of advance notice. He said to him, whatever happens tonight. So he's obviously got this idea in mind from the outset. But from that point onwards, I mean, okay, the people that are around the table are, I suppose you could say, yeah, they're, they're, they're posh. And I'm, I'm struggling to actually say anything mean about the people around the table other than Dell. Because, okay, you could say there's a bit of snobbery going on and what have you. But if the other guests around the table had been constantly delivering put-downs to Rodney all evening, then you'd start to think, okay, there's some justification for Dell doing what he's going to do. It's one way of him reacting to it. But the other people, I mean, he gets into the conversation with the, the fella about watching Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, and the other people, the other end of the table, they inquire, they ask him politely about his studies and what have you, and where he'd gone, and when Victoria says he went to Basingstoke Art College, initially Henry's sort of disappointed, but then just covers it, and just says, oh, I've heard good things about it. So, yeah, nobody else is being nasty on this table. It is all emanating from Dell, and this is the point where, more than anything, it turns. You've got this section in your version where they're talking about his time at Basingstoke, art college, he's been there for three weeks, and then he politely says, Rodney says, I left for personal reasons. And Dell replies, yeah, they weren't his drugs. And in your version, that gets a big laugh. And of course, we all know the story of that, because it's been told, I think, in episode one, in series one, about how this is something which comes back again and again is supposedly given as a reason as to why Rodney doesn't just tell Dell to shove it and go off and make his own way in the world. It's because he's got this conviction, unfairly, for possession of cannabis. And despite all the circumstances and so on, how he just sort of found himself caught up in the situation, you know, that's where he is. And so I think that that's 
that's something that's used again and again to suggest you know this is perhaps why Rodney doesn't pursue you know a career outside of Trotter's independent traders because he's always going to have to tick that damn you know criminal record box every time he applies for something and yet that's as far as it went in your version now the full-on sequence is this is Dell is absolute worst. I mean, he's been doing all the bits and pieces that you wouldn't have seen before as well. He's doing things like tapping the glass with his knife and putting his finger round the rim to make a noise. Just, just silly business like that where he's clearly just amusing himself. But then when it gets to the point where he mentions about, oh, the one has drugs. Here's a full text of what Dell actually said. Rodney, it's important that these good people know the whole truth. What he was found in possession of... All right, no, they weren't. They belonged to this Chinese tart. The story you see is that he went down to her room to buy her a box of chalks, and she said, come in, Rodney, have a puff on this. And before you know what's happened, the old SGB, they burst in and he was caught, banged to rights with a reefer. Now, I just wanted you to all know about this drugs conviction just in case it was ever brought up by the gutter press. You know, I wanted to know that he was done up like a kipper. Specifically, his delivery of that drugs conviction, it's almost like he's trying to put the idea into the Duke's mind that if he hasn't already had misgivings about Victoria and Rodney being an item, which, as, as you said, is all still in Dale's mind in a way because it's not even Rodney or Victoria's intention, that that seems particularly malicious. That seems he's really sticking the knife in. All bits and pieces that you didn't get to hear, he actually recites a verse of The Boy Stood on the Burning Deck. <laughs> and then he intends to tell this joke about an Irishman on a skiing holiday. And of course, this is a touchy subject because, as she's already explained, Victoria's mother died in a skiing accident some years earlier. That really does seem full justification for then Henry saying, right, I've had enough of this. Get the hell out of here. And then that's when, of course, you see Dell's intention because he has that conversation and he's still being obnoxious even then. And then he says, well, I can think of one thing that might get rid of Rodney for you. And off they go, have the conversation and so on. As far as edits are concerned, that's the end of it. So now you've seen everything that's in the original version from this point onwards. One thing that's often stated when you see people discussing this online and what have you, it's not quite correct. I don't think that he's entirely blameless either, but it is not true that Dell deliberately breaks Rodney's hand. <laughs> and just for the avoidance of doubt, it is also not true that Dell has a slash and a glass of whiskey and then hands it to Rodney in a different episode. <laughs> Which I've also seen <laughs> on the internet. It's actually the other way around. And even then, it's not done deliberately. But yeah, I mean, my God, if you believe everything you ever read about Dell online, you just think the man's an absolute monster. You think he's worse than Jack and Hodges put together. If you can imagine such a thing, and I don't want to. But yeah, you've got then that whole scene in the flat where it comes to its conclusion. <laughs> and... <laughs> You keep going, don't mind me. <laughs> Rodney hits his hand against the waste disposal unit and then says, I think I've broken my hand. And then right at the end, they shake hands and he realises he's shaking the hand with the damaged hand. Dell says, oh, what are you, you plonker, and so on. He doesn't grab his hand and repeatedly stab it against the table. <laughs> And <laughs> start looking around for a mallet. Now, the thing finger. is, I did have in my notes the payoff is grim too. The crush handshake. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I asked you right at the outset. I said, imagine that. So I'm going to repeat this now so that all listeners are clued in. <laughs> that last image, you've got an audience reaction. You've got an audience laughing at this. I've got silence. I've got yes. nothing. He says, Christmas he, he, is cancelled. <laughs> well, basically, he explained. Then he explains. That's why we had says, to do this in spring. <laughs> then this is where then Dell explains that, look, I thought you were getting in out of your depth, and I did this for you, and so on. And of course, he's engineered a situation where Henry's going to then offer Rodney money to clear off, and Rodney has turned it down, which then annoys Dell, of 
course, because that was his intention throughout. But then, yeah, Delph sticks out his hand and says, come on, let's make up and what have you. And, yeah, in your version, he is, is almost as if, oh, silly old Rodney, what a plonker. He thinks he's broken his hand, and then he uses that hand to shake hands with Dell. Cobb, blame me, what a dipstick. But in in our version, in our... No, in my version, version, it came across as Dell's just being as cruel as possible. <laughs> but in that case, why does the, in italics, audience laugh? Why, why, because why that's what audiences do. What if we, we, we looked at something... In the last few weeks, where I noted that the audience left has seemed a bit jarring and unpleasant. Oh, that was it. That Beryl Marston, right at the beginning, Jonathan Morris's character is like, these are my parents, and he tears the picture in half, and that's the problem, and the audience laugh. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a broken home. Classic. Overall, I think we can agree that Dell's actions are at, to be overly charitable in a huge way, his actions in this episode, throughout this episode, are misguided. Everyone, be honest about it, he just comes across as a complete bastard. <laughs> what do you think of the overall idea of a re-edit, a fundamental re-edit to this extent of any sitcom episode? I think in a situation like that, the original edit should be available. Not so much as a moral right or any kind of entitlement, but... Come on, don't pretend you didn't do it. Don't pretend it didn't go out that way. People have their memories. They'd like to see it. Not so much, how dare you re-edit this. This is censorship. But come on, just as an extra, go on. Yeah, so we understand there's lines in this episode, like there will be in many episodes of Only Fools and other shows, that would be removed for what you call humour of their time. Yep, I get that. Now, as far as editing it to actually change the plot. Again, I don't have a problem with it. I'd like to see the original version available so that it effectively was sort of presented as if it was... No, it wouldn't be called the director's cut, but it would be... I think it's generally speaking referred to as the 2004 version. That's the title that the BBC's given it. But that doesn't really tell you anything. It doesn't really clue you in. Whereas you can get both versions of A Touch of Evil. And they don't seem to be odds with one another. It's just there were three versions flying around at one point. Oh, really? Yeah, they found a pre-release edit that for a while they thought might be Wells' version, but it turns out it was just the early edit of Universal's cut, and there were actually long scenes in that that were nothing to do with Wells, and got trimmed for timing reasons. But for a while, they noticed some of the scenes were longer in this pre-release version. Some of the scenes were slightly longer in the released version so they put together an edit that i think was the first version i saw this super long edit and it's quite confusing when i saw the reconstructed so-called director's cut it was the first time i actually knew what the plot was one thing i would say is that although i don't always defend the practice i do find it fascinating i find it a fascinating area the whole business of retrospective edits and the pros and cons behind them. I don't think it's something that's black and white. I think that every instance should be considered on its own merits. So Ocho, do you plan on revisiting a raw flush anytime soon, perhaps? Actually, yes, I want to see the super grim version. Yeah, I was going to say, you might want to have a look at the 1986 version just to see how it compares with 2004. Maybe I'll have a look at 2004 next time it pops up in gold and compare it. Next week, we will be engaging in, I suppose you might say, a little bit of whimsy. Is that fair? Yes, I suppose so. We're going to have some assistance, just in case Ocho and I have any heated disagreements, because it could go that way. We don't know where it's going to go. It could go Jeremy Kyle. Uh, and we are going to be discussing, effectively, the sitcom universe, and how characters in the sitcom universe may or may not interact with each other, certain crossovers, certain meetings that could have taken place. We're going to try and draw a comedy map of the sitcom universe. It sounds ambitious. In the meantime, Ocho, thank you for your time today. Goodbye. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget, you can get hold of all the previous episodes of the Sitcom Club by going to our website, sitcomclub.com. You can find all the previous episodes either on iTunes or straightforward XML feed. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook as well. Just look for The Sitcom Club and we're on Twitter at The Sitcom Club as well. Until next week then, this has been 
your old pal Ocho and Hey Home and Co with the Second Club. <laughs>